0: Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ministry-Minded Podcast. I'm your host, of course, Brad Gray. Of course, the Ministry-Minded Podcast is a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God, which meets us in our messy ministries. And I can think of no other uh, guest that would be more perfect to talk about that than another returning guest, my friend Nick and I'm so um, excited to have Nick back on the show. Uh, a couple of episodes ago, we had a conversation about sports and the way that we approach sports is often the way that we approach life. And lo and behold, Nick has released his uh, first uh, publication from Mockingbird Ministries, my good friends over there. And he has released a book called Life Is impossible. And uh, I have finished this book. It is such a fantastic read. It is such a fantastic book that talks about uh, why life is impossible and why it's good news that life is impossible and actually why it's bad news if we approach life as being one that we can uh, accomplish, as one that we can win, as something that we can earn. And in fact, that's what we kind of talk about in this episode. Um, Just talking about (laughs) how humans strive to be, uh, their own self-saviors, and just about how, uh, the, uh, the death that comes, uh, from living your life under the mantra, earn this, instead of living your life under the mantra, it is finished. We talk about that and much more, talk about Nick's book, and uh, I hope you'll benefit uh, a lot from this episode. I think you will. Uh, Before we get into the conversation, of course, this episode is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Research shows that the top two reasons why people don't often read their Bibles is because either they're too busy or they just don't understand what they're reading. And so the goal behind the the Christian Standard Bible is to have more people reading a Bible in a way that makes it accurate accurate that makes it readable and it makes it shareable and that's what the Christian Standard Bible strives to be it's accurate to the original languages but it's also easy to read and easy to understand it's a Bible that you can feel confident in sharing with people who have little or even no familiarity with reading the Bible at all and so that's what makes the Christian Standard Bible to me so effective and so um, easy to share with people because it gets them uh, right into the Word of God. I think uh, if you want to find out more about the Christian Center Bible, go to csbible.com. I highly recommend that you do that. Now for my conversation with Nick Lannon. Well, thank you for joining me again, Nick. how How are you doing? How has uh, life been for you? And how's the family?
1: I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on again. I think uh, when we spoke last, I was in between jobs. I had um recently left my role in the Episcopal Church and was getting ready to plant an Anglican church. We are in the throes of that now. We're uh, having Sunday worship in an elementary school and we're doing the the church planting thing, but it's been really fun and um, very rewarding. Oh, that's great. I am so excited to hear that you are doing well
0: and that your church plant is doing well and uh yeah I think we were both in sort of transitionary periods and and uh I am again um with the new pastoral role I'm taking but uh I'm so excited for you and grace Anglican mission I'm grace glad Anglican you Church. Were doing... grace Anglican Church yes, sorry <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad it's doing well though um let's just get straight into it uh because it's the uh the topic of the day I would assume it is your newest book from Mockingbird Ministries Life is. Impossible. I have uh, recently finished it. Um, I couldn't put it down. I just was so excited to read it when it was announced, and I was so um, grateful for the uh, early copy you gave me. And um, I was very moved uh, by the book. So again, thank you for writing it. I just wanted to ask uh, right at the beginning, what was sort of the inspiration behind putting this book together?
1: Um, well, the truth is that i i found myself returning to this theme in my preaching i it wasn't it wasn't anything intentional i just uh i guess week to week i kept coming up across the assigned uh scripture readings that i was having to interact with for that week and i i found over a certain period of time that I kept telling my congregation not to think of their lives as difficult, but as impossible, and that it was in thinking of their lives as impossible that they would call out for a savior. And I just sort of, um, well, like I said, I I found myself returning to the theme. And then um, I did a breakout session at a Mockingbird conference a couple of years ago called impossible is nothing and everything sort of gathering some of my thoughts about this theme and it's sort of it it came together well i thought and i i sort of thought that i could organize my thoughts into something more substantial and it's you know it's a little more substantial it's it's one of the shortest books i've ever seen but um but somebody said that it is short but Packs a big punch, and uh, <laughs> yeah, someone did say that, that, didn't they? I hope I. that's true. <laughs> I definitely think it's true.
0: Um, I think that's. I think that's what makes uh, life is impossible so um, unique in a lot of ways, in the sense that it, it describes a pretty sort of, I guess, heavy theological concept, but but does it in a way that's very accessible, which I think is really. Um, I think it's just really uh, great, it's a great resource to have because you're describing a lot of uh, theological themes that might be sort of heady to get around, but you do it in a way uh, to where anyone can pick up this book and understand the point you're making, even with all of your uh, pop culture references to Frasier and such, uh, which I adore, by the way, Um, um, which also leads me to believe, or leads me to ask, um, besides, you know, these sort of lectionary um, readings that sort of made you realize sort of this theme or caused this theme to jump out more, um, perhaps more apparent to you. Uh, why do you think perhaps a book like this is necessary? Um, I believe it is necessary, but I would, I'm curious why you think it's necessary, especially now in 2019.
1: Um. Gosh, I don't know the. I don't know if I think it's more necessary now than it ever has been. I mean, I also am am sort of reluctant to claim that I'm um, breaking new ground here. I mean, um, I a lot of the way I um, talk about and think about these things has been formed and influenced by um, preachers and teachers and friends that that I've had. So a, a lot of this is, in fact, I would, I would say that none of it is new to me. I'd like to think that I, um, I have a, I've, I've been given, I think a good g- g- gift of illustration. So I do think that I can, in a sense, the, the, the way I hope that this, book is a particular offering to the world is <laughs> of you know, the world. That's uh really, high, really high minded. The world will be reading my book. And I hope that the way that this can be an offering to the uh, several dozen people who read it is um, that it, it, it might, um, it might show them something they've heard before, but in a way that is potentially easier to understand or to, relate to um and the truth is that um i think well i mean i haven't lived of course throughout time but my my suspicion is that our time in this sense is not ultimately that different from any other time which is evidenced by the not evidence but that that people have always secretly and not so secretly Desired to accomplish the difficult, because it allows us to um, show everyone else what a good thing we did, how hard we had to work, what we had to overcome, um, what obstacles there were in our way. Look what we were able to do. Um, we were able to accomplish this very hard thing. I mean, the um, one of the sort of cornerstone examples that I keep returning to in the book is the idea of um mission impossible which is not actually impossible right ethan hunt always accomplishes the mission every single time every episode of the tv show and in every movie the so called impossible mission turns out to just be difficult and this is this is something that we love this is something that we 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 actually want to do the thing that is difficult so that we can take credit for having accomplished it this is a very human thing i mean when the um rich young man went to jesus and said what must i do to be saved he was looking for something difficult when um naaman got so angry at elisha for just telling him to go wash in the river it's because he wanted something difficult he wanted to they wanted to after the fact be able to go to others point back to what they did and say isn't that a great accomplishment so this is not something new i don't think um it's something that humans have always wanted we've always wanted to distinguish ourselves um by accomplishing the difficult it's like um uh, john f kennedy when he talked about going to the moon he said we do these things because they're hard." We we want to show the world how great we are and in theological terms um we call this self-justification the the effort to make everything okay by our own efforts and um the thing that i try to say in the book is that thinking of our lives as difficult leads inevitably to efforts at self-justification And that leaves Jesus out of the equation altogether. And it's only counterintuitively the recognition that our lives are not difficult, but impossible, that leads us um, to call out for the Savior who delights in accomplishing the impossible for us.
0: Mm. Well, and I think I would agree with you that this type of message and theme isn't specifically 2019 it's something that speaks i think to every human who's ever existed which i think is why it can resonate with a lot of readers Uh, i think also why it resonates with me because we are all self-justifiers as you said in one degree or another um at our at our very at the very core of who we are we seek to justify ourselves and whether it's like you said uh, with john f kennedy or perhaps, with trying to accomplish some certain thing, or we can see it in the Gospels, with the um, Pharisees trying to accomplish the law and trying to hang their hats on their piety, we each sort of uh, pursue this um, this difficult life in accomplishing the impossible on our own and uh, in a lot of different ways and i but I think that 's why it makes it so resonant of a book which i, I again i 'm really appreciative of. That we, because we all desire to be our saviors. And the one sort of illustration that has struck me the most, um, the one that I, I just am intrigued by is your use of um, the scene at the end of Saving Private Ryan as sort of this modern anthem to religion um, in, in, the, in the sense where Tom Hanks says, earn this. And um, can you kind of elaborate on on how you used that and 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 what and why you kind of employed that and in, in in the juxtaposition between earn this and it is finished?
1: Yeah, I've talked about um, Saving Private Ryan a lot, and the funniest thing I think is that I can't, I don't think that the screenwriter of that film had any idea what he was doing, and yet, however, has created, as you say, an incredible, um, modern parable. Um, so for those who, who aren't familiar with the film, uh, Tom Hanks plays a captain in the army who in the aftermath of the, um, Omaha beach invasion is sent with a squad of, of eight soldiers to quote, save P- 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 private Ryan. Who's this, soldier whose three brothers have already been killed in action and the uh higher-ups have decided that they're going to save him so that um his mother doesn't lose all of her sons in the war and so it's this sort of there is a there is a f- philosophical question uh, throughout the film about is it worth the lives of these eight soldiers t- to save just one and at one point um Tom Hanks is, is talking to one of his lieutenants and he says like, this kid better be worth it. You know, he better, he better c- 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 go home and cure cancer or invent the longer lasting light bulb. And then, so this all leads to this uh, climactic scene near the end where, you know, sp- spoiler alert, uh, but Tom Hanks sacrifices his life to save private Ryan. And in with his last Breaths. He reaches out and he holds Ryan's hand, and he says, "Earn this." And he's asking him to, you know, with the rest of his life, earn the sacrifice that he and his eight men have made to save his life. And we flash forward, and we see this old man Ryan in the cemetery in front of Tom Hanks's headstone, and he's um, he's oppressed. He's crying and he, he turns to his wife and he says, tell me I've been a good man. Have I lived a good life? And, um, you know, she assures him that he has. And of course, in the world of movies, I think we're meant to believe that he has because he has this wonderful family. He has two very attractive granddaughters. And, uh, so like in movie world, I think we're meant to believe that he has. And yet we can see on his face that he's been oppressed for his entire life and is still not out from under it. He's lived under the oppression of Hanks's last words to him, earned this for his whole life. And it just struck me immediately upon um, seeing the movie that this is how so many people think of Jesus speaking to them from the cross. They, they think of Jesus like Tom Hanks in Saving Private Ryan, hanging there from the cross and telling them to earn this live lives worthy of the sacrifice he's making we probably all all heard something like this in youth group right are you living a life worthy of the death he died and this is the burden that christians put on themselves and like old man ryan at the end of the film they're burdened they're weeping. They're asking somebody in their life to tell them they've been good enough, and no assurance will do the trick. And of course, the good news, capital G, capital N, is that Jesus didn't say earn this from the cross. In fact, he said quite the opposite. He said, it is finished. Uh, He said to a thief hanging there, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. There was no expectation of an altered life. In that case, that guy was going to die that moment. And he said today for calling out to me for saying, remember me a sinner, you will be with me in paradise. And so this, this, uh, film that I actually really love as a movie, um, tells an incredibly powerful story of the law without the gospel. Uh, Tom Hanks lays an incredible law on Private Ryan, earn this. And despite his good life, I mean, his wife assures him, yes, you've lived a good life. Um, He doesn't believe it. You can just see it in his eyes. And um, we Christians, though we so often do, don't have to live under this weight. We have been given a different word. Our Savior didn't say earn this. He said, it is finished. And um, that weight, were it to have been spoken, is an impossible weight to bear. And the law that Jesus did speak, in fact, is an impossible weight. You know, therefore, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's an impossible weight. And to the extent that we expend effort trying to live up to it, which is laudable, we should, we should do good things. We should live holy lives. The law is not bad. It's pure, and holy, and good. Um, but it will leave us beaten and battered and bloodied and actually dead. <laughs> That's what the, the scriptural witness is, that, that life under the law will leave you dead. But – The law is not the end of our story like it's the end of Private Ryan's story at the end of that film. The law is the first word of God, to be sure, but it's not his last word. His last word to those who call out to him is, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It is finished. He is taking a weight off of us. The law puts a weight on us, and it is a proper weight. It is a weight that um, we ought to live up to. It is our created calling, but we are sinners and um when we acknowledge the impossibility of the weight it it makes calling out for that saving word all the easier and um all the easier to hear it and hear it we will it is finished truly i tell you today you will be with me in paradise and there is nothing more freeing more enlivening than that word um that jesus christ uh speaks nothing more killing than earn this and nothing more enlivening than it is finished. Amen.
0: And I just, but I
1: I love the juxtaposition of those two phrases
0: because they couldn't be more opposite. Like you said, uh, one, like you just said, one kills, one gives life. The spirit of the law is death and the spirit of, of the, of the gospel is life. And it sort of reminds me um of something you again you write in 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 your book which where you write um the impossible work of god makes an impossible life good news it means you don't have to save yourself god has done that for you and this kind of speaks to this idea of living under and earn this um burden is an impossible weight like you said and it's it also kind of speaks to this notion um, that's a, a common in a lot of people's vernacular that God helps those who help themselves, that we have to be our saviors and we have to at least do something in order to kind of quote unquote, earn this uh, redemption, earn this salvation, earn this sacrifice.
1: And right. He'll go, he'll go 99 yards. If you just go one, you know, he'll do everything except the one little thing that you have to do. And that's, of course, just makes everything dependent on that one little thing. It's still, if anything is dependent on you, then everything is dependent on you.
0: Well, and it just, it it speaks to me because, um, just how just like you said it's so such a ludicrous idea that it would rely on us if jesus has said it is finished because like you write in the book and and which is so i think uh, true and accurate is jesus comes precisely for people who can't help themselves for people who what i would we could say who would have no hope otherwise than having someone from the outside helping them and that's precisely, I think, the point you're kind of driving home throughout the book. But I think it's especially a profound point in the, to understand sort
1: of the terms of the gospel. Right. And he he explicitly crushes those who think they can help themselves. I mean, that's really the the, the true interpretation of that story of the rich young man that I referenced earlier, like. When I, when you first read that, it really reads as a, as an awkward thing. Like a man comes to Jesus and asks him how to be saved. And you would like, if, if somebody came to me and asked me how to be saved, I would tell them about the saving work of Jesus Christ. And you would think theoretically, at least that if somebody came to Jesus himself and explicitly said, how can I be saved? Um, that, Jesus would say, like, in a little while, I'm going to Jerusalem, and this thing is going to happen, and it's going to, trust in that, trust in me. I mean, he did say, I am the way and the truth and the life, I mean, he wasn't totally opposed to telling people about his saving work, but to this guy, who was, as we see in his response, reliant on himself, his goodness, When, when Jesus tells him to keep the law, he says, I've I've been keeping the law since childhood, like child's play. No problem. I've been doing that. And so Jesus knows that the appropriate thing for this guy is to have his possibilities stamped out. And so Jesus proclaims the law to him, give everything away, sell all you have, give the proceeds to the poor, come and follow me. And we read that the man went away sad for he had many possessions. And the implication there is that he couldn't handle something impossible. He wanted something difficult. He wanted to, you know, give away 80%, give away 75%, 90%, anything, but a hundred percent, like that's really too much. And so he was, he, he was like, Well, I I would have done something something difficult. And Jesus knew that he needed to be confronted with the impossible. And that's the law. That's the that's the crushing word. And Jesus, you know, Jesus was a great and powerful law preacher. You know, he he's the one who said, be ye therefore perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. That's the law. And he crushed people with it. But then by his action, he was it himself the gospel. He was the good news for sinners. Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Mm.
0: Well, and it speaks to... Um... Well, what Jesus does there in Matthew five is so um, crucial to understand because he is sort of reorienting not just how the Pharisees and the scribes and wh- whoever you want to fill in the blank there understood the law. It's us, us too. Like you, the point you make throughout the book is that it's it's not just a difficult mission; it's an impossible mission in the truest sense of the word, wherein he sums up the law there in Matthew 5:48 it's not just it's not just um, a, a, as holy as you can be it's 24/7 365 100% non-wavering holiness that's the barometer and it's sort of like that's what we well, a lot of people misunderstand when they say god helps those who help themselves it it kind of relates this idea that there's some sort of holiness that we can and i would say must attain In order for God to intervene or before God will acknowledge our, perhaps our, our merits or our efforts, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there are verses that I can understand how they could be interpreted that way. Like when we read uh, Jesus saying, behold I stand at the door and knock and the idea you know like he's knocking all you have to do is like unlock the door that's just the one little movement you have to ask him into your heart that's all you have to do and then he'll do everything else but the the news is even better than that I mean his his knock is like shattering the door down you know like you you have no I mean it sounds like you have no choice you know Jesus is not a gentleman. He's coming in and um, he's re- renovating you whether you like it or not. And honestly, for a little while, you're probably not going to like it. Um, but one of the, the images that I return to a few times in the, the book is the image of uh, high jump because I, I high jumped in high school. And uh, when, when you're, talking about the Sermon on the Mount. Like that's Jesus like ratcheting up that high jump bar, like higher and like you've heard it said that uh, thou shalt not kill. And that's a high jump. That's, you know, relatively low. Most people can go ahead and jump over that. But I tell you that you shouldn't even be angry. So he's like raising it up really high. Like don't even be angry. And then he says, anybody who even thinks you fool, is uh, worthy of the hell of fire. And so then it's like, okay, that high jump bar is so high that I can't even really see it. Like I can't even understand a world in which I could have such a pure heart that I wouldn't even think anyone a fool. So Jesus is saying, especially in that sermon and in other places as well, he's saying that the life I'm calling you to is, for a sinful humanity, impossible. But I need you to understand that so that you don't think you can save yourself. And I'm going to be the savior that you fail hmm. to be.
0: I, I, well, that's that's very good. but I and, and I think another great illustration of that and also another illustration of sort of our misconceptions – Regarding the Christian life is the illustration you return to quite frequently, which is this idea of the Christian life as a mountain. Can you kind of talk about what that is?
1: Yeah, so uh, that illustration actually came from my friend, uh, John O. Lineball, who I thank in the acknowledgements and reference a, a few times in the book. He was instrumental in helping me sort of understand they had these things, and we had a class together in, in seminary, and as part of the class, we each had to stand up and give our testimony. And he, he, in his testimony, talked about how he had at one time in his life understood the Christian life to be like a mountain surrounded by a fence. And the Jesus was – the opener of the gate in the fence. He was the one who sort of got you in, but then you had to get to work to climb the mountain. And this is exactly, I I didn't have that particular illustration, but it's exactly how I thought of the Christian life. And it's exactly how so many people I've talked to have thought or still think in general terms about what the Christian life is like. Jesus gets you in sort of, sort of, salvation is by grace alone we would almost all say that but then getting up the mountain something like sanctification or christian growth or spiritual development or whatever you want to say that's up to you like you you have to you know do your quiet time every day and um strive for sexual purity and strive for honesty and you know, all the sort of good things that you ought to do. And by doing those things, by keeping that law, you can sort of progress up the mountain and, and nobody would say they're at the top, you know, like we're all, we're all struggling, but underneath the surface, maybe we wouldn't admit it in public, but a lot of us, and I certainly was, were sort of, looking around and seeing who else was how high on the slope, like, oh, well, maybe I'm not as high as so-and-so, but I'm certainly higher than this other so-and-so. And And as long as we could sort of pretty clearly see that there were people lower than us on the mountain, we could feel okay about ourselves. At least we're not down there with so-and-so. And And, um, Jesus just breaks all that down. And um, the image of the Christian life is more like you know, him picking you up from outside the fence and just putting you on top of the mountain. And then the Christian life, in fact, becomes something more like getting used to life at that altitude. (laughs) You know, like you're, you, you all of a sudden are, are just, you have been called righteous on account of Christ's offering for you. And um, there's a Lutheran theologian named Gerhard Ferd, A-F-O-R-D-E, who said, now that you don't have to do anything, what are you going to do? And the implication there is that the the theoretical Christian who understands that they're saved fully by grace, who then takes that opportunity to sit on their couch and do nothing, is just a construct of people who are worried that other Christians are going to get away with something really that person doesn't actually exist. I always, um, I I always ask everybody who, who tells me, you know, well, what about this person who gets grace and then doesn't do anything? I always say, introduce me to them, take me to them right now. And I, I still have yet to be introduced. Um, Because truthfully, when you're plucked from outside the fence and put on top of the mountain, maybe you're like sort of out of it for a while. But then soon enough, you start looking around and thinking, I'm free now. And you find yourself doing the things that you thought you needed to do to get to the top of of the mountain anyway, like keeping the law in a way, like maybe working at a homeless shelter, or tithing to the church, or reading scripture more, you find yourself doing these things naturally. That's why uh St. Paul refers to them as fruit of the Spirit, right? They're things that come naturally from a tree that has good roots. These fruit come by themselves, and you find yourself at the top of the mountain when you realize that there is no expectation of you that the things that you thought were expected start to bloom naturally in your life anyway. Mm,
0: That's really good. And I also, like when you were writing and talking about that illustration of the mountain climb, well, I had a a number of thoughts that just hit my head. And I can't remember if you make reference to this passage in the book, but I'm sure it was kind of in your mind. Um, But I just thought of that passage in Galatians where Paul is writing to the church at Galatia and he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, you know, who has bewitched you? Have you, Having begun by the spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? And that's sort of this idea of the Christian mountain climb. Ha, you get in through the fence. It, it, are you now being perfected and climbing up on your own? And it reminded me of this great quote um, from another book by uh, an old write, Scottish writer named Horatius Bonar, who when he writes and he says this, faith is not a climbing of the mountain, but a ceasing to attempt it and allowing Christ to carry you up in His arms, and I think it's so perfect <laughs> to this, I to the, to the fact of the gospel, which is as you as you point out, it's it's not your climbing up and scaling it. You know, it, again, we could go back Ethan Hunt style in Mission Impossible Two. It's that's not what it looks like. It's. You giving up and Christ actually putting you on the top of the mountain for you. <laughs> he gives you his summiting of the mountain, which I think is just – in, in, in uh, it's almost ludicrous. It's so insane that it has to be – it can't be believable except by the fact that we believe it by grace through faith, which is, I think, the point of the gospel.
1: <laughs> well, and you can see why just like by tracking the way our conversation has gone – you you can see why I, f- I felt obligated to at the end of the book talk about Christian growth, because that was not my intention at the start. I, I thought I would just you know say that life is imp- impossible and then illustrate that, and then say why that was good news and then illustrate that, and then I was done. And it turned out that that I couldn't leave it there. That um that it was obvious that that forced the question about, okay, so what does it mean to grow as a Christian? What does it mean to, um, have a life of faith? What does a Christian life now look like in this world? And, um, another illustration that, that, that I've liked and used, I think I sort of got the original inspiration for this from Paul Zoll, who was a professor of mine in school. And, um, He talked about uh, um, the the gospel uh, shining a light in all the uh, the nooks and crannies and un un what was the phrase he used like the unredeemed dark corners of our hearts, and so uh, I liken Christian growth to not like mountain climbing but more like more like Belunking, like uh, rather than climbing up, you're descending into a cave and you're shining the light of God's grace into like ever deeper crevices with like, you know, those nasty worms without any eyes. And like all the gross stuff that you're hiding from everybody, including yourself, like Christian growth involves revealing those places more and more to the Lord and offering, yes, even those to him that say, say, yes, you know what? That thing that I pledged to never tell anyone about, I'm going to acknowledge that you took that to the cross too, that you knew that when you said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That this thing in the deepest, darkest corner of my heart, was why those words had to escape your lips that that my crevices my deep dark uh, uh, unredeemed corners of my heart are what um sent you to the cross and that acknowledgement is christian growth like you feel you could never feel closer to god than when you see your sin on his shoulders on the cross i mean that that um leads like i said earlier to fruit of the spirit and that um like i don't actually believe that we are closer or further away um from god depending on ourselves i think that it's not our job to to get or stay close to him it's in fact his job and his promise to get and stay close to us um yet it's certainly true that we feel that way And um, when you think of your life as difficult, it's easy to think of yourself as close to the Lord when you're accomplishing the difficult tasks he's set for you, or at least convincing yourself that you are. And it's easy to think of yourself as far from him when you're failing. And in fact, it's almost as though the exact opposite is true. That um, a a true sort of quote unquote, if this is even a, a phrase I can use, which is, a a mature Christian is somebody who knows the depth of what Christ has accomplished for them. And that, that involves introspection and honesty and acknowledgement of one's sinfulness, not one's accomplishments.
0: Mm. Well, and if you'll allow me, let me read that passage where you talk about the quote unquote nooks and crannies, because I love it. I was going to reference it. And it's so good because like you, I've been, wrestling perhaps i've been musing on this idea that's been you know uh, propagated throughout church history of you know like you said a quote-unquote mature christian and what that even means and what that even looks like and you write in your book christian growth isn't like climbing mount kilimanjaro it's more like spelunking expedition descending into a mammoth cave shining a light into all the nooks and crannies that are full of spiders, gross worms with no eyes, and horrifying insects. Jesus enters the caverns of our hearts and shines his light into all the corners of sin that we didn't even want to acknowledge to ourselves. Spiritual maturity isn't about getting better and better and seeing fewer and fewer people around you in the pews who can measure up to the standard you're setting. No, real spiritual maturity is about the light of Christ shining into ever deeper and darker unexplored corners of your sinful heart growth in christ advancing spiritual maturity means an ever-growing acknowledgement of just how excuse me of how much we need jesus and that to me i think is well amen and amen to that but i think that's the essence of this whole thing that we've been talking about it's this idea of an unexpected gospel message That And says in order to grow, you have to realize how dead you are and how much you can't grow in and of yourself. And I think that that admission is what makes, you even say this in your book elsewhere, that that admission is what makes Christianity unlike other religions. You say later on in your book, only Christianity offers a God that comes to you. Only Christianity has a God who doesn't wait for you to get to him. The Christian God in Christ crosses the chasm from clean to dirty to get to you and i think that's what makes um the gospel what makes the christianity so different than any other system of belief and faith is this idea that 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 god the creator crosses the chasm and not the creature
1: yeah and i mean this is what we're really celebrating at christmas right like the 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 problem not uh, I should preface this by saying that I'm no I'm no church historian but as I understand it the one of the problems that the first k- k- Christians experienced with evangelism was that the incarnation was rejected out of hand that that the the sort of um the gnostic understanding of of like sort of human and er humanity and earthiness was by definition, dirty and holiness. And this spiritual realm was by definition clean. And the whole point of life was to try to get rid of your dirt. This is what the idea of karma is all about as well. We sort of try, try through our lives to get rid of dirt to eventually sort of qualify for that um, spiritual realm. And the idea that we would have an incarnate God, that God would demean himself by coming here and like being born, like a woman birthed Jesus out of her womb. And there was all that that entails. I mean, there's no way that was, that was so beyond the pale that that questions of, like, what Jesus taught were, like, not even gotten to. They were like, wait, what are you saying? That God came to earth? Okay, forget it. You're a lunatic. And so when we celebrate Christmas, the, the incarnation, this is what we're celebrating. This is why the incarnation is such good news. It doesn't so much have to to do with sort of jesus experiencing life like us and and with us although that's good too the profundity of it is that holiness came to sinfulness rather than expecting sinfulness to clean itself up to get to holiness because that's what every other system of religion every other system of philosophy and that's by the way like how your office works as well like you You have to qualify for the promotion. You have to get good enough to get recognized, and then you get the good thing. And that's how every sector of your life works, except that's the opposite of how Jesus worked. Jesus is the embodiment of holiness coming to sinfulness before sinfulness could ever clean its act up and get to holiness and saying, I come to you And I don't wait for you to get to me. In fact, I sacrifice, I give my holiness to you. Take your sinfulness onto me and give what I deserve to you who don't deserve it. So you can be called the holiness of God, which is a name that I earned, but that I give up, that I I give to you.
0: Mm. Well, amen to that, Nick. I am so excited for this book. Um, Thank you so much for uh, talking with me tonight about it and for just kind of examining some of the themes that you put into it. I know probably, well, I know for sure, a lot of hard work went into this book into um, making it as readable as possible. And I think that you have succeeded in that regard. And so I'll just leave you with, uh, if you want to say one last parting word and, uh, and and talking about life is impossible
1: you should have warned me that I was going to get to say a p- 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 parting word. Like Andy Rooney on 60 minutes. I would have, I would have written something. I mean, the only parting word I have is that, that that really, it, it sounds like this, this is what, um, what the theology of the cross is all about, right? That, that something that seems to us humans to be bad is actually incredibly good. That, that's why we call Good Friday good, right? Jesus died. Oh my gosh, that's the worst thing in the world. They killed our, our savior. And yet it is by death that Jesus defeats dying. And in the same way, the news that your life is impossible sounds really bad. And, you know, I'm sure that somebody is going to pick up the book see the title and put it right back down because like that's going to be a downer like what's the point but my hope is that most of us subconsciously know that this is true we actually experience our lives as impossible despite our protestations otherwise we we you know keep not getting the girl that we want or we keep not getting the job that that we want or we or maybe um more simply like we keep doing the thing that we promised ourselves we weren't going to do anymore like we keep staring at ourselves in the mirror and saying i'm not going to yell at my kid and then the next morning before breakfast we yell at our kid and we say my goodness and so we know deep down i think that life is impossible and my hope is that i've i've been able to um say that that's good news because when we can admit it, when we can say it out loud, you know what? I can't do this. I need someone to come in and do it for me. Then the news that we actually have had someone come in and do it for us can be heard, can be understood, can be celebrated. And that an impossible life acknowledged is one that can be lived in a much fuller way than somebody who's trying desperately to cling to the difficulty of their lives and trying to overcome it and sort of just like bashing their head against the wall every day and pledging to get a better start tomorrow. And we can say at the end of every day, well, my life got out of my hands again, but thank the Lord in heaven that he sent a savior, Jesus Christ for me whose righteousness is all that I need, that I have a new name now. My name is no longer like father who's not quite good enough, provider who's not quite rich enough, um, employee who's not quite loyal enough. My new name is um, good and righteous child of God on account of Jesus' accomplishing the impossible for me and giving it to me for free. Mm.
0: well amen to that Nick I would say you have definitely succeeded in that and everyone who picks up this book please don't put it down I don't think you will once you you read it once you read a couple of the pages in it I think you'll like me not be able to put it down Uh, I'll make sure to put all the links to the book you can buy it from the Mockingbird store and of course via Amazon and whichever you choose to purchase it through definitely please I'll be the one who Begs the listeners, please go out and buy this book. It's, uh, it's wonderful. It's a great read and one that I'm sure will encourage you for uh, many years to come. Thanks, Nick, for uh, your time this evening, and uh, thanks for coming on and talking to, with, talking with me.
1: Thanks for having me. It was really fun, Brad.
0: Thanks again to Nick for coming on the show today and for talking about his book. Be sure you go to Amazon.com and get your order in for Life is Impossible, or you can find it by going to the Mockingbird Ministry store. Both of those links will be in the show notes. That's it for today's episode of Ministry Minded. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you just heard, be sure to follow the show on Twitter. At underscore ministry minded. You can also subscribe to the show uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, make sure you go to graceupongrace.net slash podcast and you can find out where you can subscribe. Um, I really appreciate the Christian Standard Bible for sponsoring this show and make sure uh, you go over there and check out what the Christian Standard Bible is doing. Thank you always for listening, subscribing, and for commenting. I'll see you guys on the next episode. Blessings.